brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, I'm Eliza, and welcome to another episode of Leave the Lights On. I hope you are having a wonderful week. If you're new here or haven't done so yet, please go check out the show's website, lightsonpod.com. There, you can find out more about the show and get caught up on the latest episodes. In the early morning hours of July 5th, 2005, George Allen Smith VI, honeymooning aboard the Royal Caribbean cruise liner Brilliance of the Seas, plunged from the balcony of stateroom 9062 into Homer's wine-dark Aegean Sea, never to be seen again. Was it an accident, a suicide, or a murder? Join me and together, let's find out. Smith, at 26 years old, was tall and deep-chested with a broad, handsome face and twinkling blue eyes that reflected his kind and dryly wit nature. He was a nice, young, decent human being loved by everyone, his mother Maureen says. He had it all, really. George graduated with a business degree from Babson College in Wesley, Massachusetts in 2000. While working as a computer search engine analyst in Boston, he began to tire of the solitary hours behind a desk. He was a social creature after all, happiest amongst the hustle and bustle of people. In 2003, he returned to Greenwich and went to work for his father, the proprietor of Coast Cobb Liquor. One day, so the plan went, George would take over the business and allow his parents an easeful path into retirement. On June 25, 2005, George married Jennifer Hagel at Castle Hill Inn in Newport. Jennifer, 25, an eye-catching blonde from Cromwell, Connecticut, would retrospectively portray her life with George as very nearly charmed. 
We were just, you know, sort of doing what normal and love couples do, like cooking, drinking great wine, having a good time, thinking our lives were pretty much perfect. It just seemed like everything was falling into place, she said in Greenwich Probate Court in 2008. She had landed a job teaching third graders in Westport, and they were about to celebrate their union with a luxury cruise of the Mediterranean that George had meticulously planned. Brilliance of the Seas shoved away from Barcelona just before sunset on June 29th, docked on the French Riviera, then cruised down the coast of Italy, anchoring in Livono on July 1st. Here, the Smiths caught a taxi to Florence with the Askin family of LaGuala Hills, California. A podiatrist, his wife, and their three almost grown children. Josh, at 22, the eldest child, was a cute California kid, but he also seemed to be a bit of a handful. In Florence, he'd bought a bottle of absinthe, a potent arsenic-flavored spirit, long banned in the United States and much of Europe, and prevailed upon Georgia's good nature to smuggle it aboard the ship. Most bans had been lifted by 2005, but cruise operators still forbid passengers to bring alcohol on board their ships. And I mean more specifically outside alcohol. They have alcohol obviously on their ships, but yeah. George tucked the absinthe in his waistband and strolled up the gangplank, a seemingly harmless event that nevertheless may have been a link in the fatal chain. The ship rounded Italy's boot and headed out into the Aegean, making for the Greek island of Monkos. George and Jennifer spent a happy day together, which at this point was July 4th. The couple was walking among the island's whitewashed villas and sun-banked lanes. Then they returned to the ship to prepare for the evening ahead. Back in room 9062, Jennifer put on her makeup as George stepped onto the balcony to smoke a cigar and stare out at the darkening water. Then they went to Chop's Grill for a romantic dinner and to the Casino Royale for some late-night gambling. Here, a baffling element of the story comes into play. It seems that George or Jennifer, or maybe even both, were overheard saying that they had heaps of wedding gift cash, or perhaps casino winnings, locked away in their cabin. Ultimately, it was never really determined, but whatever, the whole point is, they had money on them. The amount varied from witness to witness, between $14,000 or even $17,000, all the way up to $50,000. Whether the Smiths actually possessed a store of thousands is unknown. George's family actually doubts that they even had this amount of money. But what's important is the perception that they did, which perception is everything, and especially in this situation. Their glamorous looks and Greenwich pedigree only enhanced the view that the Smiths as a dynamic young couple with money to burn. They looked very prosperous, Maureen says. He bought her the biggest diamond you could ever see for their engagement from a South African jeweler, and the wedding ring was even bigger. 
She notes, too, that her son dressed smartly and wore an expensive Britling watch, a wedding gift from Jennifer and George's best man. People turned to look at them wherever they went. Attorneys Jones and the Smith family speculated that rumors of their wealth kindled a plot to rob George and Jennifer. In the casino, as July 4th turned into July 5th, the Smiths first encountered the three young men who came to be known in this story as the Russians. Gregory Rotzenberg, 19, of Boca Raton, Florida, formerly of Brooklyn, his cousin Zachary, who was 18, and their friend Roslay or Rusty Kaufman, both from Brooklyn. A fourth, Zachary's brother Jeffrey, who was 17, spent the late hours in his cabin watching a movie. By this point in the cruise, the Russians were palling around with Josh Askin, though later in a deposition taken by Jones, Greg Rotzenberg spoke despairingly of the affluent Californian. To me, Josh was just one big bundle of spoiled, a spoiled kid, a crybaby type dude. The Russians themselves cultivated swaggering, steer-wise personas, and backed them up with abysmal shipboard behavior. Before dawn on July 4th, a security guard found the Russians drinking and smoking by the main pool on deck 11. Gregory was arrogant, shouting in a loud voice and claiming, nobody can stop me, the guard reported. Gregory kept on shouting, fuck, fuck, fuck. The Russians also earned a reputation for abusing room service operators. On July 2nd, someone in stateroom 3004, which was Gregory and Jeffrey's cabin, placed a ridiculous order, prompting a warning visit from security. On the fateful July 5th, it happened again. At 1.24 a.m., Martina Mason, a room service night operator, was jotting down an order from 3004 when a voice in the background said, hurry up and bring our motherfucking food. Then someone grabbed the phone from the young man placing the order and, in an apparent reference to some lost bags, said, make sure and get our motherfucking luggage tomorrow. And if you don't, I will throw your motherfucking ass overboard. Mason consulted security. A security supervisor paid another visit to 3004 and instructed Mason not to pick up if the Russians called again, a detail that would prove noteworthy as the night unfolded. Neil plans foiled, the Russians then went back to the casino. They'd been there after dinner playing craps with Josh Atkins and probably met the Smiths then. Events proceeded quickly. Jennifer played poker with Greg. Josh and George left for Josh's cabin on deck nine to drink absinthe. George, presumably still with Josh, swung by his own cabin to fetch extra cash, and the two were back in the casino by about 2.20. When the casino closed 10 minutes later, the Smiths, Josh, and a casino supervisor named Lloyd who, according to Jennifer, were kind of like buddies with George, rode a glass elevator up to StarQuest Disco on deck 13. 
On the elevator, Josh said he noticed something awkward. Lloyd draping his arm around Jennifer in brazen disregard of George, though it strains belief, as we shall see, that any such gesture meant what Josh imagined it did. It is in StarQuest Disco that the story begins to haze over. Juan Jimenez, the bartender on duty, remembered seeing the Russians, Josh Askins and George and Jennifer, all chatting near the revolving bar at around 3 a.m. After I made last call for bar service, Greg, who was at the counter, ordered four more vodka shots. He gave the shots to George, Jennifer, and another man. I saw George move from the counter to the piano, and he was walking without difficulty. When I left the bar at 3.25 a.m., George was standing between the piano and the railing with his hands in his pockets. Jennifer was standing at the bar talking to Greg. Juan Jimenez noted that Kaufman said he had a bottle of absinthe in his room, but he probably meant Askins, who entered his cabin at 3.05 a.m., presumably to retrieve the absinthe. Troy Gonzalez, a cleaner then at work in the disco, observed Josh, Greg, Zach, and Rusty celebrating and drinking shots of liquor from their own liquor bottle, which they appeared to be hiding. So right now, what is really happening is it is a whole cacophony of things. We have different witnesses saying that they observed Jennifer and George drinking with these guys, but who are we to believe? Some, but not all, described Jennifer as a flirty drunk between 3 and 3.30 a.m. Keith Greer, Askin's attorney, had painted a cozy picture of Jennifer and Lloyd nestling on a couch, but nobody other than Josh seemed to have noticed this. Instead, the supposed flirty behavior involved Jennifer leaning on Dominic Maz, a 24-year-old auditor from New Jersey. But Moz told the Associated Press that he thought Jennifer was just simply drunk, not flirting. Whatever the case, at about 3.30, according to Moz and others, George walked over to Jennifer and said, you hussy, whereupon she booted him in the groin. Some said that the kick was like maybe playful, but others said it inflicted obvious pain, causing George to crumple to the floor. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Then witnesses heard Jennifer say, fuck this, I'm out of here. 
she turned and left the disco in the attentive company of Lloyd, according to Josh. Zachary seconded Josh's story in a witness statement he gave to Royal Caribbean, and Rusty Kaufman told at least two passengers much of the same thing, that Jennifer left with Lloyd and had been cheating on George. The problem with Lloyd's story is that it's demonstrably untrue. First, Lloyd left the disco with friends at about 3.15 and entered his girlfriend's cabin at precisely 3.25, according to past key records. You know, those little things that you kind of swipe in and swipe out at hotels. Second, witnesses saw Jennifer leave the disco unaccompanied at about 3.30 a.m., stumbling on her way out and striking her head against a wall. Troy Gonzalez, the cleaning man, was one of those who saw her go. Noticing her instability, he trailed after, then boarded the elevator with her and got her safely down to deck nine. But Jennifer was more disoriented than Gonzalez realized. When she got off the elevator, she turned right instead of left towards her cabin, came to a dead end at the ship's bow, and slumped to the floor, unconscious. On this development, the whole story turned. If Jennifer had only managed to get back to her cabin 9062, George would probably be alive today. But let's go back to George and figure out how he ended up where he ended up. George remained actually at the disco for roughly 15 minutes. By 3.45, he was apparently so drunk on vodka and absinthe that Askin and the Russians somehow in fine working order, despite their own copious intake, had to assist him back to his cabin 9062. Finding his cabin empty, George grew concerned and enlisted the four to help make a search of the disco on deck 13 and the pool area on deck 11. But their search was quick, like nine minutes quick, as to seem, you know, like they actually did something, but they really didn't. And of course, the team returned without Jennifer at 4.01 a.m. Whether Askins and the Russians tried to set up Lloyd or made a collective error cannot be known, but the Lloyd story does raise an important question. Why did only these four young men tell this version of events and all other relevant witnesses flatly contradict it? After walking George back to his cabin, Zachary witness statement says, we put him to bed and even took his shoes off. He was in bed, passed out, not moving. We went back to my room and ordered room service around 4.30 and then went to bed. Gregory's statement is almost exactly the same, but omits the room service. Josh's statement seems somewhat peculiar. He makes a big deal of using the bathroom in the Smith's cabin. We entered George's room. I went to use the bathroom and Rusty and Zach took care of George while I was in the bathroom. After I was finished in the bathroom. Josh's bathroom moment is a detail he repeated many times, either himself or through Greer, as if suggesting he was in no position to see anything. 
if there was really anything to see. Josh continued. I opened the door and said a verbal goodbye to George, but I never actually saw where he was in his room. Nevertheless, a timeline of events appears to support these blameless accounts. Past key records allegedly show Zach opening stateroom 3008 at 4.05 a.m. and Greg opening 3004 two minutes later. These computerized data would seem to vouch for the young men's innocence. But could someone have slipped down to deck three, used the pass keys, then hastened back to 9062? The answer to that, unfortunately, is yes. And if a person were let back into the cabin, there would be no pass key insertion to record. But more to the point, impartial witnesses also convincingly rebuke the young men's story. Cleet Heyman, a deputy police chief from Red Islands, California, was staying with his wife in stateroom 9064, next door to the Smiths. Here are excerpts from his typewritten statement. Just after four hours on the morning of July 5th, I was awakened by loud yelling in 9062. The yelling sounded like persons cheering on someone doing shooters. I removed my earplugs and could again hear the subjects yelling in unison. At this point, I called the guest relations desk and reported the disturbance. I also banged on the wall. During the next several minutes, there was talking in the room, but I could not distinguish voices. It was quieter in the room for approximately five minutes, and then there was a loud arguing on the balcony between several male subjects. I could not tell what was being said as it sounded like it was in Spanish. After about two minutes, I could hear someone speaking in English saying goodnight several times. It sounded as if someone was trying to usher people from the balcony through the room. I heard the door open in male voices outside my door. After about five to ten seconds, I opened my door and looked out. I observed three white or Latin males walking aft towards the elevators. Heyman checked his watch, which showed 4.18 a.m. The argumentative Spanish he heard could have been Russian, but the three males have always been a point of contention. What happened to the fourth? Did he stay behind in George's cabin, as Michael Jones and the Smiths believe? Did Heyman miscount? The deputy chief went on. For the next five to eight minutes, there was movement and talking in room 9062. I heard cabin doors closed and the flushing of the toilet. I could hear one male voice in the room. I then heard what sounded like balcony furniture on the balcony of room 9062 being dragged about and picked up and dropped. Cleet Hyman was not the only one who heard the loud sounds. Two cabins down from the Smiths, Carlos Machaya, in 9066, was startled awake by a big noise of many people. And on the other side of the Smiths' cabin, Pat and Greg Lawyer, in 9060, heard the stressed voices and furniture moving, but described the latter in more violent terms than Heyman. What it sounded like to me is somebody was throwing things against the wall, like throwing furniture in the room against the wall or against the floor. 
Greg Lawyer told Dateline. So loud was the noise that the lawyers assumed someone was trashing the cabin. Did the out-cold George wake up and began talking to himself? Why all the furniture flipping? Was George raging against Jennifer? Or was someone tossing the room in search of cash or jewels? These are questions that still remain unanswered. The commotion died down for a couple minutes. Then, at about 4.25 a.m., several passengers, including Heyman and the lawyers, heard what Heyman described as a horrific thud. Undoubtedly, George hitting the lifeboat canopy two decks below. Nobody was heard leaving the Smith cabin, but in the aftermath of the reverberating crash, this could have escaped notice. Also, one passenger reported hearing a woman scream right after the thud, so I'm not sure what was going on there, but also that scream was never reported as in the woman didn't come forward with what she saw. The next sound was at 4.30, and that was of two security officers finally answering Heyman's noise complaint made at 4.05. The security officers rapped firmly on the door, but hearing nothing just went away. At about the same time, a plumber found Jennifer asleep against a door at the end of a hallway on deck nine. A cleaner, a facility supervisor, and two security officers promptly arrived on the scene. When they got Jennifer back to 9062 at 4.50 a.m., they noticed the balcony curtain was closed and motionless suggesting that the sliding glass doors behind the curtains were closed. Even if the night air were still, a ship moving across the open sea would have created its own breeze and caused the curtains to blow about. This is a curious detail. If George had gone out to smoke a cigar, would he have closed both the curtains and the glass sliders behind him? It makes no sense, says Jones, but it's consistent with somebody having done something and then leaving. Also, I'm not sure if they even got a smoking room because if they didn't get a smoking room, then you probably would close the doors. Maybe not the curtains, but at least the doors because you don't want that smoke to blow back in and get in trouble. But still a curious detail. Josh and the Russians went down to cabin 3008, Zach and Rusty's room, and supposedly ordered a glutton supply of room service. They say they were so impressed by their mountain of food that they photographed it, with the date and timestamp affixed, though these are known to be altered. Later, on July 5th, Josh sat poolside and reportedly told Margarita Chavez, who had witnessed the Smith's disco fight, it was the room service that saved us. Josh plainly considered the room service and its documentation as an alibi. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, 
effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Basically meaning, because they ordered room service, he's off the hook. But there's strong evidence suggesting that the alibi was fabricated. According to Royal Caribbean's investigation, there was no record whatever of orders written down or delivered. Here, we remembered the Russians' abuse of the room service operator, Martina Mason, just three hours earlier, and a security officer's instructions to cut them off should they try to order again. It's true the embargo had applied to 3004 and not 3008, but they knew who these kids were, Jones says. Turkish police boarded the ship just after noon on July 5th. They took blood samples off the lifeboat canopy and combed stateroom 9062 for clues. On George and Jennifer's bedsheets, they discovered two lozenge-shaped bloodstained. Each spot is small, only two centimeters long, but still big enough to suggest some sort of injury. Whose blood was it? Was it George's blood? Apparently, according to Michael Jones, they believe that it is, disclosing the fact for the first time. It seems an odd coincidence that George would bleed into his sheets and fall overboard the same night. Maureen Smith suggests the stains, which run parallel to each other, could have resulted from an effort to pry the watch from George's wrists, which, if you'll remember, it was a very expensive watch. The watch was new and very hard to get off, says George's mother. At a Kutisai police station that day, police questioned Jennifer, Josh, and the Russians. Once again, Josh Atkins provokes suspicion, not about what he did so much as what he knew. When the Turks told him Jennifer was a suspect, Josh said with remarkable certitude, She has no idea what happened. She was with another man, the casino manager, Lloyd. He jabbed his finger at the floor. You need to get him here. I'm not letting her go to jail. How could Josh say Lloyd and Jennifer were together and implicate only Lloyd? Back on the ship, Josh continued to trip alarms. Cabin attendant Francis Iso claimed Josh asked him whether video cameras were installed in the corridors. And this was something as I was reading this case that I was thinking about, like, wouldn't and don't normally ships have cameras installed in the hallways? 
because there were cameras installed in the casinos and pretty much in most of the public areas, which was a way that they were able to track Jennifer. The cabin attendant actually confirmed the suspicions and said yes, there were indeed cameras in the hallways. Josh asked where. Francis refused to tell him and basically Josh just kind of walked away, which would they tell you? No, of course not. Two or three nights after George's disappearance, Joan Cox, the head cleaner on the Brilliance of the Seas, happened to ride an elevator with Josh and his shipboard girlfriend, Corey Adams. Cox said Josh uttered the phrase, assholes got me in trouble, almost got me arrested in Turkey, and I know more than they think I know. Before, in Cox's view, Corey kissed him to shut up. So now let's turn our focus to Miss Jennifer. I clung to Jennifer. Maureen Smith says of the weeks after her son's death. She was all I had left of George. But in late fall, the Smiths broke off complete contact with Jennifer, suspicious of her extreme resistance. She refused to talk about the night of George's death, even in the privacy of the Smith home, and said she'd refuse to be disposed if it came to that. Jennifer's inability to remember anything about the night in question completed the picture of a woman with something to hide. As rumors of a dalliance swirled, the Smiths were left wondering whether Jennifer was withholding something significant or merely embarrassing. It struck them as unlikely that she was withholding nothing at all, but Jennifer passed an FBI polygraph exam, as did Lloyd. Yeah, you guys by now know my kind of thoughts on polygraphs, so I'm not really believing that. But anyway, one theory kind of highlights the fact that Jennifer and George were roofied, which, I mean, I'll be honest, it's something that actually happens a lot more than you think. And we women kind of know about that. But it's also one of those things that it's very rare to have both victims roofied. But it is a theory. The theory goes on to say that someone slipped a drug in hopes of incapacitating and basically robbing the couple, which again, if you'll remember, the couple were pretty much flaunting their money, though I'm going to say they probably weren't flaunting their money. But who knows, they at least portrayed the idea that they came from wealth, which attracted a lot of grubby people. Blackouts and amnesia are typical effects of these kind of ruby drugs, which have a notorious history on cruise ships. And don't look it up unless you're really wanting to terrify yourself into not going on a cruise. Though let's be honest, this story is probably going to make you not want to go on a cruise anyway. Moreover, that terrible night was the one and only time Jennifer ever suffered a complete memory blackout, which she testified in Greenwich Probate Court. It is indeed curious that both George and Jennifer deteriorated so rapidly in the early morning of July 5th. At around 2.30, according to Jacques Freelander, a cruise friend of the Smiths, George wasn't drunk and Jennifer seemed very coherent. An hour later, both were a mess. It's a reasonable possibility that she was roofied and that he may have been as well. James Walker, 
Jennifer's maritime attorney says. I find it strange that all these younger men had to carry George back to his room. Might have been excessive drinking, but it sounds like more than that to me. What happened next on the brilliance of the seas gave credence to dark images about the Russians. On the night of July 6th, leading into July 7th, an 18-year-old from Georgia returned to her cabin, accompanied by a male friend, to find her traveling companion, who was also 18, trembling and shaking. She told local newspapers that she thinks that she was raped and that it might have been videotaped. When asked who did it, she said that it was Jeff, Greg, and Rusty that she knew of. The ordeal had begun with vodka in the hot tub up on deck 11. The alleged victim herself reported, I started to feel tipsy, so I got out of the hot tub. Jeff and Greg asked me where my cabin was and said that they'd take me back to my room. They took her to their cabin instead, she reported. I was on my way back and Jeff got on top of me. I remember Greg saying he'd get the video camera. The young woman that describes in graphic but strobe-like detail having sex with Jeff, Greg, and Rusty. Strikingly, Greg asked her to speak validifying statements in her terms, into the camera, including naming Greg as the film's executive producer. Thus, Greg anticipated questions of consent with the poise of an old hand. If she cried rape, the camera would show otherwise. When Rusty began taking his turn, the young woman wrote, I believe I blacked out. Sometime later, I opened my eyes, amazed that I could see. At 3.17 that morning, someone in 3004, which was Greg's and Jeffrey's cabin, called room service and tried to order, quote, a motherfucking turkey sandwich. And our wonderful room service lady, Martina Mason, hung up the phone. The young woman came forward with sexual assault charges, and on July 8th, Royal Caribbean officials sat down for a tense meeting with Rosenberg's. A handwritten notation in the Royal Caribbean file reads, Rosenberg family out of control. Russian family all screaming and talking in Russian. Suspects in the alleged rape are very belligerent. The following day when the ship docked in Naples, Royal Caribbean ejected Rosenberg and Askin parties from the cruise. Josh Askin did not have sex with the young woman, though he was in the room, she said. Italian officials briefly looked into the rape charges and then just basically washed their hands of the matter, claiming they had no jurisdiction, which this surprisingly happens a lot on cruises. There is a crime junkie um, episode where they kind of go into a little bit of a detail about all the problems that happen at sea, including um, trafficking, where you would have people who get off at ports, especially young women, and who would be plucked from those port towns to never return to the cruise ships. And since the cruise ships are really big, and a lot of the families, you know, just assume that their family member may be somewhere else, they don't get reported in time, and at this point, they have left the port. And then, of course, when they try to, like, backtrack everything, the cruise lines usually wash their hands of it, and also the ports do as well. Uh, And it's a sad story. 
And this is just another story, but this time it's a little bit different as there could have been possibly a murder that actually happened on the cruise itself, not in a port. Now, this is where things get a little bit interesting because we're going to kind of go into the details of basically what happened behind the scenes in terms of like, you know, all that legal stuff. So buckle up. In 2006, Jennifer, who was the administrator of Georgia's estate and had been harshly critical of Royal Caribbean, surprised the Smiths by settling Georgia's potential wrongful death claim against the cruise liner for $1,050,000. Jones argued that this amount fell far short of Georgia's earnings potential. Further, the Smiths could not help but think Jennifer's goal in settling had been to dodge embarrassing disclosures at trial. As news of a rift between Jennifer and the Smiths trickled out, it was she who suffered the slings of public invective. A black widow reputation still taints Jennifer, now remarried with a child and living in Fairfield, despite the ailing of early suspicions. She was calm and composed in public, maybe too composed, says James Walker, but she grieved unbelievably in private. Terrible, terrible, terrible. In 2008, after extensive witness testimonies in Greenwich Probate Court, Judge David Hopper upheld the settlement, saying Jennifer had acted prudently. The Smiths appealed to Steamford Superior Court. In 2010, shortly before the case was to go to trial, Jennifer, the Smiths, and Royal Caribbean reached an amendment settlement worth $1.3 million, which crucially required the release to both families of the cruise liner's case file. But behind the scenes, leading up to the averted trial, Michael Jones was quietly disposing persons of interest in the death of George Smith. Attorneys typically advise their clients not to elaborate in depositions, knowing that prosecutors carefully phrase all available statements in search of inconsistencies. But on basic yes or no questions, this shouldn't be an issue. Nevertheless, this is what was said. Jones, did you play a part in the death of George Smith? Josh Atkins, I invoke my Fifth Amendment right. After the deposition was over, Keith Greer, Atkins' attorney, drew Jones aside and said he ought to take a close look at Greg Rosenberg. Josh claimed that Greg had disappeared from the alleged room service party in 3008. The impression that Askins knew more than he'd let on was reinforced by the disclosure in January, courtesy of Dateline that he flunked his FBI polygraph. When Jones deposed Zachary Rosenberg, he too repeatedly invoked his right against self-incrimination. Jones could not say nothing about Rusty's deposition, citing an argument with his attorney, Albert Dayan, nor is it known that Kaufman fared on his polygraph. When asked about the videotaped, Gershfield said he wouldn't comment on evidence, but maintained his clients innocent and expressed doubt that a crime was committed. Richard Seasley, Jennifer's attorney, Richard Seasley said, quote, Jennifer has made every effort to discover what occurred the night of her husband's death, but she prefers to live her life without further media attention as attention has done little to serve George's memory or find answers for her and George's family. One who did comply willingly with Jones was Gregory Rosenberg. 
In 2010, Jones found him serving a three-year sentence in Florida State Penitentiary for trafficking the narcotic oxycodone, a crime committed, Rosenberg says, to support his yin for clothing, jewelry, and watches. In the deposition, which Jones videotaped, Rosenberg strikes one as ravishingly engaging, smiling frequently and speaking in gangsta cadences. But his veracity quickly fails. He denies having sex with the young woman aboard the ship, though he knows Royal Caribbean confiscated the videotape proof. Of George's disappearance, Rosenberg says he knows nothing. Further, he professes total cooperation with the FBI in his desire to see the case solved. I even offered a polygraph and everything. My lawyer offered that man. The feds wanted me to take a polygraph. I took a polygraph. Jones was surprised by this statement. He said, you took a polygraph? Yeah, it was inconclusive because, you know, I have ADHD. I guess you could tell I like to move a lot. It was inconclusive. Ain't no lies that I need to tell. His chattiness oddly ceases when Jones asks him if he thinks Jennifer was involved in George's death. No comment, he says. He goes on to express his unambiguous views that George was murdered. Why would somebody want to go overboard that's a millionaire anyway, he says, betraying his assumption of George's wealth, which, if you'll remember, while they may look the part, they didn't have the money. Dude didn't kill himself. I don't think he slipped and fell. Somebody hurt that dude, man. Somebody hurt him. Something crazy went down that night. On this, at least, he and the Smiths agree. Though encouraged by new strings in the case, the Smiths cannot help but wear George's loss heavily. We're not the people who we were before, Maureen says. I see his face in front of me all the time. I hear his voice. You can't have him taken away from you in one split second, and nobody explains why or where he went. It can't happen. It's not going to happen. Now, the investigation is actually stepping up in pace. In recent months, Jones has had substantive discussions with U.S. attorneys in Connecticut and in New York about the possibility of transferring the case from New Hampshire to the Southern District of New York, headquartered in Manhattan. The reason for the transfer makes sense now is that two of the targets, or you know, suspects, live in New York, Jones said. Although Jones steers clear of naming a suspected killer, he does acknowledge that new developments suggest a tightening focus on the four young men who escorted George back to his cabin just before he went overboard. It is around these men that questions keep gathering. Did they simply put George to bed and then leave the room as they contended? What about the grave flaw in their supposedly immaculate alibi? You know, the room service. Why the attempt to deflect suspicion to Jennifer and another man? And what about the mysterious bloodstains on George's bedliners? This case has me questioning everything. What we do know is that something happened in that room. We know that the young couple, George and Jennifer, were in the casino having a fun time and somehow Jennifer was separated and wound up passing out in the hallway while George was escorted back into his room and then he was never seen again. Jennifer and George made friends with these four men and 
it is possible that these four men were attempting to rob the young couple, despite the fact that they didn't really have that money. And that's according to George's mother. She didn't believe that they had that cash on them. But basically, this story is just full of a lot of what ifs and questions that at this moment, we don't have the answers because the cruise liner kind of just swept it under the rug. Though it does seem like the attorneys, Jones and others that are involved are trying to get this thing solved and justice served. The messed up thing about this is too that I didn't mention is that Jennifer just kind of wasn't really startled by George's disappearance. She was eventually escorted, as I mentioned earlier, back into her room. And at this point, George was already overboard. She did wake up and seemed to not really notice that George was gone. It took her about an hour before she reported him missing. Another theory that kind of does get floated around is the possibility that actually Jennifer was indeed having an affair, but with not the, the Leopold guy or Liam guy, it was actually with the young Josh dude and that maybe the two of them concocted this whole idea. It's an odd theory, but it does have some merit as it seemed Jennifer reflected everything that especially when the Smith family wanted to question her about what really happened. And it does seem likely that she could have not necessarily had an affair, but maybe made out with one of the four guys that were there. And that wouldn't look good on her. Now, of course, everything that I just said is speculation. I'm not a detective and I'm only just looking at the possibilities. And of course, all the attorneys are looking at the possibilities too and are trying to put the, the story together. Ultimately, what we do know is that a man was lost at sea and it was a tragic death, avoidable death, possibly. And if it really was, the motive really was to rob this young couple, why? Why throw George overboard? Why not, you know, if he was so passed out, why not just let it be, you know? I don't know, a lot of questions, but a very interesting case indeed and a tragic one. But for me, that's where I'm going to end things. We are really over time, but, you know, hopefully that makes up for all the other short stories that I've done, you know, a while back. If you do like the work that I'm doing, then show some support by leaving a five-star review on Apple or share the show with people you know. Before I sign off, as always, I want to give a shout out to our top tier Patreon members, Catherine, Jonathan, Shelley, and Victoria for supporting the show. And thank you to my other Patreon members for supporting me as well. If you want to have your name forever immortalized in audio, then consider becoming a Patreon member. Membership starts at a dollar a month and gives you access to ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. To sign up, go to lightsonpod.com, click the support tab, then click on Patreon. While you're on the internet, be sure to follow the show's social media. Stay safe and remember, it's scary out there, so leave the lights on.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.